welcome everyone. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is another episode of Take 15, the podcast series where we bring you 15-minute conversations with leading practitioners on timely topics. And what could be more timely right now than the stock market? Investors have a lot on their minds with worries about slowing growth, trade wars, and higher interest rates. And here to help us make sense of it all is Kate Moore. Kate is the Managing Director and Chief Equity Strategist at BlackRock, where she's responsible for developing global equity market insights and representing BlackRock's views on U.S. equities. Welcome. Kate. Yeah, thank you. So it's November 6th today, mm. uh, and investors have just emerged from a month that has been described as brutal, ugly, frightening. October was the worst month for stocks in seven years. What are you telling clients? Well, I think the uh, question to ask is why the last five or six weeks was so brutal. And to try and sort of unpack what the anxieties are in the market today, especially relative to where they had been. Um, I think the latest sell-off was driven by uh, a couple different factors. Number one, accelerating fears around the Fed, uh, raising rates at a pace that was not going to be well digested by uh, companies or consumers. We think that fear, for what it's worth, is, is misplaced. Uh, accelerating uh, conflict between the U.S. and China, especially going into the midterm elections, and a huge amount of uncertainty about whether or not U.S. and China would be able to uh, work together to a, a better relate and improve their relationship, I think, over the next couple of years. The third is this fear around peak earnings. We've heard this thrown out a million times, and it came up well before earnings season and came up a million times since. And, but, you know, we, we don't think we're at peak earnings. Maybe the, the rate of growth, particularly in the U.S., uh, will be meaningfully lower in 2019. We would expect that after uh, companies have digested and um, the tax cuts and the, the comps become a little bit more challenging. But we're still in a very positive macro and fundamental backdrop. And while the China and U.S. concerns are still going to remain present, and while we expect the Fed to continue raising rates, um, we don't think that this sort of trio of concerns should hang on the market for uh, too much longer. You've written a paper on building the right defense and equities, and you touched on that this morning in your presentation here at Equity Research and Valuation. Briefly, how do we build a portfolio that is adequately defensive? Today. Well, I think the first question you have to, have to ask is, you know, do, do traditional defensive assets make sense in a portfolio today? One of the points I made is that uh, traditional defensive sectors or sectors that have been perceived to be defensive, uh, particularly staples and utilities and telecoms, frankly, don't offer a lot of uh, value and don't offer a lot of buffer in portfolios at this stage in the cycle. Our expectation, as I was just mentioning, is that growth will remain strong, uh, rates will continue to move higher, and that um, those sectors that have been more bond proxies and have a higher correlation with bond prices just simply don't provide the defense you need. For us, the defense comes from quality allocations, both as a factor and also within each sector that you're exploring opportunities. So trade tensions, can you talk a bit more about trade policy tariffs and the impact on analyst estimates, um, and also how do we adjust the equity risk premium for trade policy? Yeah, I think analysts are having a hard time really processing the impact of trade and really uh, 
have not meaningfully uh, altered their 2019 or 2020 earnings expectations yet. Uh, a lot of it has to do because, you know, these conversations, particularly with China, but also uh, with both Mexico and Canada are ongoing. And I think there's an acknowledgement that uh, a change in government today on Election Day or at least an easing of, of trade as a priority in 2019 uh, could be a, a more supportive environment than would have otherwise uh, been part of their expectations. So I think it's hard to factor it in. Uh, what I've been saying, and it's something I mentioned in my comments earlier today, is that the conflict between the U.S. and China is likely to remain uh, front of mind for global companies and for um, you know, people with supply chains in Asia for multiple years, even if there's a near-term easing uh, between the tensions, the te with the tensions between the two countries. Well, that's a good segue actually to my question. One of the things you said this morning is that one thing Republicans and Democrats agree on is that China is a common enemy. Um, can you talk a bit about your outlook for China and how it will affect developed and emerging markets going forward? Yeah, you know, I didn't mean to be inflammatory when I said that. But at the same time, we have heard leadership from both parties talk about, you know, China's ambition on technology and China's ambition uh, in terms of uh, its influence in relations with the rest of Asia and other parts of the world and have indicated that there is at least going to be a um, renegotiation of some of the uh, existing relationship with China, especially in the post-WTO period. So that's what I meant to say there. Um, our expectation is that Chinese growth will remain solid and that the government is fully committed to continuing to support those strategic industries, which now include many parts of technology, uh, that they feel will lead to longer and more sustainable growth. I think Xi Jinping has been very clear uh, that he wants to see China more self-reliant, both in terms of its own supply chain, uh, as well as more focused on uh, the types of economic development that uh, are sustainable on the service side. And we see no change in that policy. If anything, a deterioration in the relationship between the U.S. and China would accelerate some of the plans to make China more self-reliant. So with policy uncertainty, uh, not only in trade, uh, but also regarding fiscal and monetary policy, how do we take policy uncertainty into account? One potential outcome of today's election, uh, especially in the U.S., is a gridlocked government. And generally, that gridlocked government is positive for equity markets and actually is a, is a good environment for companies that are making decisions. Uh, the uncertainty about whether or not there'll be changes in policy or the regulatory environment has been an excuse that companies have used to not invest or to not spend or uh, to not pursue deals. But if there's a gridlocked government, and this has been the, you know, the case throughout time, uh, that is a level of certainty, actually. The chances of, of meaningful changes in policy or regulation have come down. So our view would be that... Um, you know, if there are no changes in fiscal and monetary policy, continue the path where the Fed uh, raises rates a few more times, but no significant increase in fiscal spend, uh, you know, that would be a positive environment in the U.S. So one question you posed earlier today is, is there value in value? Can you drill down a bit on value and growth and how you look at them from either a factor perspective or otherwise? Yeah, 
the question about whether or not there's value and value really depends on your definition of value. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have focused on the underperformance of value, the style, and maybe overlooked the fact that value, the factor has performed reasonably well uh, during periods where economic growth expectations had improved, particularly the second derivative of growth, the growth rate of growth uh, increasing has led to, you know, periods where value, the factor has, has done all right uh, in this post financial crisis period. But when we think about value, the style, I think that there are industries and companies that are structurally impaired, that there has been a greater bifurcation between the winners and losers in value. And that, and that uh, simply looking at uh, how company is trading on common multiples or on free cash flow or um, maybe your own assessment of enterprise value is not sufficient. We have to ask a, a bigger question about what's going on in the backdrop uh, both in terms of that industry as well as the macro. And um, some of the stuff that looks cheap simply will be very, very uh, unlikely to re-rate, in my view. Can you talk uh, briefly about how public companies are using their cash? Yeah. Public companies have been risk-averse in the post-crisis period. And frankly, uh, for equity investors, that's been good news. We like the fact that they have very strong balance sheets, that they have really only focused on the sustainable parts of their businesses, that they have only hired when they absolutely needed additional workforce and invested in technology that's uh, growth or productivity enhancing. That's all great. At this point in the cycle, given the fact that uh, many U.S. companies have benefited from the tax cuts and that we are nine and a half, almost 10 years um, into this equity bull market, I don't think we're going to see an acceleration in spending, uh, at least on investment in CapEx. Our view is that we'll see a little bit more on, on buybacks, particularly since multiples have derated, and that we'll see companies making strategic acquisitions on assets and on businesses they feel will be growth creative. So switching gears somewhat in this next question, uh, in an interview with Business Insider, you were quoted as saying the number one thing that's contributed to my career in professional development has been flexibility, mm. both in terms of career decisions and my investment process. How so? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't know that I was going to be an investor. I mean, I, I talk to uh, kids who are coming out of college all the time who tell me that this is their career path and, and their lifelong ambition. I sort of fell into investing as a result of my work in political economy and my interest in game theory and understanding that I could marry my top-down policy uh, work with bottoms-up and interesting uh, insights from companies. So I think the flexibility has been critical because throughout my career, I have um, taken on new opportunities and changed roles and been willing to cover different regions or have had to incorporate more bottoms-up or more top-down inputs based on the team I was on. And I wasn't so uh, sort of a overly structured in the way I was approaching the opportunity set. I think today, for example, relative to even where I was 10 years ago, uh, the types of data sources I use, uh, new data sources, looking at older data sources but with a new lens, uh, trying to develop tools, as well as you know, thinking about the combination between index, uh, factor, and alpha is quite different. And... Um, I think being flexible and understanding that I'm going to have to continue to grow uh, is, is been a key part of my success. That's great. So what advice would you give to young women in particular who are thinking of entering this profession? Um, and what would you say has worked well for BlackRock in terms of promoting diversity and inclusion 
uh, on investment teams? So my advice, not just for women, but I'd say for everyone, is that uh, this is an incredibly interesting and dynamic uh, business if you are flexible. Uh, And so to be flexible and to be open-minded, not to have a set career path that you need to go from an analyst in this sector to a portfolio manager on this type of fund, but to recognize that building experience in macro and in micro across sectors and across geographies and asset classes is really the key to being a 21st century investor. So be open-minded, be flexible, uh, understand investor behavior, study with those portfolio managers and, and senior investors who spent decades in the market and really get to understand um, how they have changed their process over time. I mean, it just be a sponge, maybe is the easiest way to say it. Um, I think BlackRock has done an amazing job of uh, promoting an inclusive uh, work environment. We have made really constructive and new decisions um, about how we run meetings, about how we incorporate people who are on screen, about how uh, we approach our team members who might have different communication styles. And we're constantly working on the diversity side of things. Uh, There are not as many women in this business as I would like to see in this business. It is an incredibly fun and interesting job. And uh, there's nothing about it that, you know, um, lends itself to one gender over another. So if you're a problem solver and, you know, you like to get creative, this is a great position. Well, you helped set up my my final question, and that was uh, in the same uh, Business Insider interview. Uh, you were quoted as saying, I also try to be a sponge and absorb information about everything, even things outside the world of investment. The best investors are those that have a great understanding of history and behavior. Yeah. You really need to understand what makes people tick. So with that in mind, is there a book or idea that has had the biggest impact on your thinking? And what would you recommend to viewers and listeners? So let me say this. Um, some of my some of the most impactful things I've read are not in the world of business or investment. Um, and I guess I love this idea of talking about being a sponge. I do feel like I'm a sponge. Um, this may sound a little wacky, but I would suggest that investors read more fiction. And particularly, I love to read science fiction and fantasy. Uh, a class I had taken at the University of Virginia when I was an undergrad helped to sort of frame this thinking that you can look at these alternate social and political structures and ask the question, you know, what was the backdrop in which they were written? Why was the writer having a reaction to their current environment? And what were they suggesting the change and evolution might need to be, um, you know, as a reaction to, to, to their experience? And so I would say that is a very interesting and, and sort of intellectual exercise but it causes you to uh, understand the point of view of the writer. It understands the history uh, in which, in the context in which that piece was written, and also sort of the aspirations and hopes of people and, and how they would maybe change or alter or improve society. Um, and I think just understanding people in general is critical to being a good investor. I also like to say, as an investor, you need to play the player, not just the game. It's not good enough just to be right about Uh, the fundamentals, or be able to perfectly forecast earnings. You need to understand how the rest of the market is thinking about those earnings and how that sort of plays into uh, an overall portfolio approach. 
So reading a lot that helps to challenge your, your assessment of your current environment and helps you to understand history through different lenses, I think, is, 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 uh, is critical. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Kate. And thank you also to our listeners. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can now also find us at iHeartRadio, in addition to iTunes and our CFA Institute member app. Thank you for listening. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.